Well, you know, a lot of the challenges with housing is just the cost of housing. And, you know, honestly, when you're on wheels, it'll, it does allow you to get some type, some exemptions from the traditional building code. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 137 with Darren Dinsmore. Darren is the urban planner and landscape architect behind the amazing Tiny Camp Sedona, a small pod of tiny houses available for nightly rentals outside of Sedona, Arizona. Darren is just getting started applying his skills as a developer of tiny house communities. He'll let us in on the exciting projects he's working on now, how he approaches developing tiny house communities, and what he's excited about for the future of tiny homes. I hope you stick around. But before we get started, did you know that I personally send a tiny house newsletter every week on Tuesdays? It's called Tiny Tuesdays, and it's a weekly email with tiny house news, interviews, photos, and resources. It's free to subscribe, and I even share sneak peeks of things that are coming up, ask for feedback about upcoming podcast guests, and more. It's really the best place to keep a pulse on what I'm doing in the tiny house space and also stay informed of what's going on in the tiny house movement. To sign up, go to thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter, where you can sign up for the Tiny Tuesdays newsletter. And of course, you can unsubscribe at any time. I will never send you spam. And if you ever don't want to receive emails, it's easy to unsubscribe. So again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy next week's Tiny Tuesdays newsletter. All right, I'm here with Darren Dinsmore. Darren is an urban planner and landscape architect with over 25 years of experience in community-based planning and design. He launched Crowdbright in 2010 to bring plans to life and find solutions to improve civic engagement. His award-winning interactive online tools have helped more than 1 million people design their city while leveraging more than $2.5 billion of new investment. The Crowdbright team helps build the natural, social, and financial capital to strengthen neighborhoods and revitalize communities. They were awarded the App of the Year in 2016 by the Lincoln Land Institute with projects featured in Fast Company magazine. To help create more sustainable and vibrant communities, he launched a suite of smart planning tools, including infillscore.com and the Community Revitalization Program used by more than 400 communities. Currently, Darren is working to create new jobs and innovative housing solutions with a five-tiny-house demonstration project across California and Arizona. The first projects include Tiny Camp Sedona, City of Riverside Grove Tiny Homes, and a tiny house for a teacher at the Sedona Charter School. The latest project features integrated community gardens and many sustainability features. Darren Dinsmore, welcome to the show. Hey, Ethan. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. So that's quite a uh, a history of of working in development and advocacy. What what is it that got you into tiny houses? Well, I would have to say I'm probably a recovering urban planner. And, you know, a lot of the projects that I've worked on, uh, both in Canada and in California, uh, you know, some of the large redevelopment community revitalization projects can take five, 10 or or even 20 years. And I thought that I, you know, I wanted to see things happen quickly. We're, as, as you stated, we're in a housing crunch or a housing crisis. And I thought, you know, tiny homes are a, a very innovative and out of the box solution. And uh, hopefully we can get more housing on the ground sooner, better, and faster. Awesome. So it's kind of, you see them as a way to envision or to to realize infill and, you know, addressing housing issues faster. Yeah, it's a good point. As property is getting more and more expensive, and, you know, right now during COVID, there's actually quite a real estate boom going on outside of the major cities. People are moving back to the rural towns and, and you know, vacant lots are getting more and more expensive. And if we can use maybe diff, you know, difficult to build on sites, challenging properties 
where tiny homes might fit where traditional housing solution might not. Got it. Yeah. And and a perfect example of that is is Tiny Camp, which is looks like it's built just kind of right into a hillside that that was really not going to be an easy place to build a traditional home. Yeah, good point. Yeah, Tiny Camp is about um uh nine minute drive north of Sedona, Arizona in the beautiful Oak Creek Canyon. And there were these really small lots that were 30% slope and a very tiny footprint and nobody could figure out what to do with them. And the Coconino County actually reached out to me and said, you know, we're open to tiny homes. We're open to housing innovation and, uh, you know, bring in an application for something different. Let's see what we can come up with. So the first project in that region involved uh, five tiny homes. So is that tiny uh, tiny camp is that project the one with five tiny homes exactly yeah and there we wanted to demonstrate different types of tiny homes so we have a net zero tiny home a net positive energy tiny home tiny homes on permanent foundations with sprinklers tiny homes on wheels and tiny homes on wheels that are also put on a mobile home foundation so we wanted to demonstrate everything that you could do you know, in, in the building code that we could use going forward in other projects. Fantastic. I love the story. I know we're jumping around, but I kind of wanted to, to rewind a little bit and just hope you could tell the story of how you, how you got these tiny homes that wound up at Tiny Camp. Yeah, so I have an online platform that you mentioned called Infill Score, and San Antonio, Texas actually beat out Portland a few years ago for being more innovative around infill development. And I met the mayor in Montreal and I was giving her an award. And I said, Hey, you know, what are you doing that's interesting and innovative that I might not know about? And she said, Well, we're our building department is working with the Construction Careers Academy and uh, they're building tiny homes and we're inspecting them just like a regular house through the process and certifying them. So we're pushing for innovation and education at the school, but also, you know, we're informing our building department and exploring ways of being, you know, more, more flexible. And uh, uh, I was invited to go to San Antonio and, and ended up, you know, these homes were at an auction and ended up bidding on them and then, and then moving them to Sedona to these uh, small lots. Fantastic. May I ask what you what you ended up paying for them? Yeah, it ranged, but they were all under uh, under uh, fifty thousand dollars. Nice. They they were not on trailers, so they had to be craned. It was an expensive move, yeah, because they had to be craned onto a truck. And then, because we were early out of the gate with tiny homes, it actually took me a year and a half. Even though the county said that they wanted them. It took a year and a half to rewrite all the rules. So they, unfortunately, they sat on a contractor's yard for a year and a half while we were, you know, getting through the permitting process. Oh, man. And it sounds like the permitting process was more complicated because you've got these different kind of scenarios. You've got the the house on a foundation, the, the house on wheels on a foundation, and then the house on wheels, just period. Did did that complicate the zoning stuff? Not that much. One that you know that was at the end of it, but at the beginning, you know, it was just you know these the smallest unit was 158 square feet. So I believe at the time we were the smallest legally approved houses in the U.S. under the International Residential Code. Nice. And you know we had to break a lot of rules in order to do that. The appendix Q in the IRC wasn't there, you know, so then how do you permit a loft and what is a loft? You know, the the ceiling height in the bathrooms and the kitchen under the new code can be lower, as you're aware, mm-hmm. but it wasn't law at the time. And so, you know, we had to get exceptions and exemptions from all of those things. So I'd like to say that, it, you know, hopefully these five little homes help to inform 
you know, the changes that happened with Appendix Q. And you you also in, in the tour, uh, Tiny House Expedition has a great tour that I'll put on the show notes page for, for this episode. You talk about how the house that you were in, and I don't remember which one it was, you demonstrated the the in-wall microwave or the in-cabinet microwave and then talked about how, you know, having an oven in the dwelling is what kind of separates it from being an accessory dwelling versus a guest suite. Yeah, I guess I alluded to a lot of sort of planning hacks and you know, a lot of the tiny house world is is working very hard to make tiny homes legal. The tiny house industry association has been working all over and has had a lot of success recently in California communities, most recently LA, San Diego, Humboldt County. It all started with, you know, with Dan in Fresno. And, but under the current rules, most zones allow for a guest suite. And under a lot of rules, if it doesn't have a full kitchen, you have to look. The first thing you need to do is go look at the definition section of your local zoning ordinance. If you're trying to build, you know, a tiny home, just go look at the definitions. Is tiny house defined? Is a guest suite defined? What's the definition of kitchen? You know, and then with some creativity, hopefully you can figure out how to, you know, add a guest suite to your current property or your, your current house. And most jurisdictions in the United States allow that, except for if you have CCNRs that uh, may be uh, more restrictive than the local government regulations. So if if the houses at, at Tiny Camp are guest suites, is there is there one of them that is kind of, quote unquote, the main house or how how does that work? Yeah, good point. So. So basically, uh, what we actually ended up doing there is connecting them with a common wall so that they are actually one dwelling unit and they have both, they're connected by an outdoor room. The other approach would have been to have one been the primary residence and one been the, the guest suite. And therefore, you can have two units on each lot. Those were small lots. Uh, so it, it kind of depends on each jurisdiction what you're you know, what your approach may be. And now, you know, we've graduated. I believe we need much more housing than just, you know, a primary and a secondary unit. We need, uh, you know, whole villages of tiny homes. And there's, in the last three years, there have been a whole bunch of them moving forward. And now we have um, four of our own in progress at the moment. And uh, with the largest one being uh, just approved for 22 units. So we're excited about that. Well, that's fantastic. Maybe you could tell tell us about them or maybe anything notable about about any of them. Yeah, so thank you for that. Um we have a project in in Lake Tahoe and uh, we've been working on that. It's on state of California land. We won a bid um I believe the state of California has mm, I can't remember the number of properties, but it's over 10,000 properties at their disposal. And they want to see ideas for innovative housing solutions. So we won one with the first tiny house village on state land. We, we leave a couple of years ago and we're working through the zoning ordinances and, and codes in Tahoe to make it legal and, and moving that forward. And the city of South Lake Tahoe is contributing some land as well. We're also working on one outside of Yosemite with Yosemite National Park and the Yosemite Conservancy, that would be housing for staff that work in Yosemite National Park and that work for the nonprofit and the, and the conservancy itself. Um, and then um, the one that recently was approved, we're calling Gather by Tiny Camp. And it's in the wine growing area outside of Sedona, Arizona, between the sort of artist community of Jerome and the town of, of Clarkdale, Arizona. And we're really excited because it's what's called a conservation development. So it's it's not a huge property, it's just under three acres, but we're putting two acres in an easement that'll have a greenway, trails, and then we're gonna have our own one acre park, which has great views. And then the development is gonna be concentrated on about an acre 
of that. So we're going to have 22 units on an acre, but each unit has a view and actually has access um, onto the greenway itself. Wow. Very cool. And will these be um, parking spots for people with existing tiny homes to come live there, or will you also be building the, the homes? Yeah, that's a really good question. There, because we have this greenway, the units are going to be fairly close together. I think the lots are 25 feet apart. And um, so when you get that close, you really want to make sure that you really want to design the unit so windows aren't looking into windows of your neighboring unit and things like that. So it's probably going to be about 50-50, 50% of the units that we will build and uh, and people can purchase them. And then 50% will be people can bring in their own uh, tiny home and uh, and get a parking spot in the gathered community. Very cool. Yeah, I think that that kind of mixed model is great because it 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 allows all kinds of tiny house people to to kind of make use of the development. Yeah, we're looking for people in that project with kind of shared values around sustainability. We also believe it, you know, it could be one of the early uh, the term that planners or well, the New York Times put out an article last month about Zoom communities. And it was actually one of the communities I worked on, which was the redevelopment of of downtown Truckee in North Lake Tahoe and this rail yard that we revitalized into this sort of walkable community. And a lot of people during COVID are moving out to the more rural areas and the mountain communities and the ski towns and, uh, you know, working remotely. So that's what that's what they, you mean by Zoom communities, like a place that people move and then they do their job remotely via Zoom. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now, we we had a technical issue this morning with our use of Zoom, but we won't talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> but um yeah, so the idea of uh, you know people they're bringing their obviously we want to encourage local jobs and local housing solutions, but there's much more freedom when you combine Zoom communities with tiny homes. It kind of opens up all these great opportunities around the West for sustainable housing. So we're looking to attract you know uh, these remote workers, as you mentioned, also people that are local and people that you know are interested in sustainability. And, you know, when you talk to people interested in tiny homes, most of them are saying, you know, I want to do this because I want to leave a lighter footprint on the land. I want to live more sustainably. Um, I want to downsize and don't need as much space. So we're, we're looking at adding some amenities that almost treat it like a co-housing project. We'll have a, Trail system, as I said, two acres of open space, a dog park, uh, community gardens, and, and things like that. So we're going to need people that want to contribute and be a part of that solution. And even along the trail system, we want to have an artist walk and, and things like that. And we're really excited because it's a really cool spot to connect with nature and the views. And also, it's a registered dark sky community. So the stargazing will be amazing at night. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I just, it seems that you can, when you're doing tiny homes, and I'm assuming these are going to be on wheels, they're just so much lighter on the, the land themselves. You don't have to dig a crazy foundation and fill the earth with concrete. Yeah, good point. Uh, yeah, these are all going to be, uh, as uh, uh, Dan uh, from the Tiny House Industry Association talks about as movable tiny homes, correct? Yeah, I'm yeah. still I'm still working on remembering to not say on wheels. It's it's hard. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of the challenges with housing is just the cost of housing, and you know, honestly, when you're on wheels, it'll it does allow you to get some type some exemptions from the traditional building code, so. If you're on wheels, you know, you could get away without a fire sprinkler system or have some kind of alternative fire suppression system that can save, you know, up to $3,500 a, a unit and provide, you know, more flexibility for people if they were working remotely, as we discussed, 
or even say there's a hospital a mile away. So say people that are working at the hospital or traveling nurses could choose to bring their house with them. And then when they're done there one year, two year, three year stint, you know, take it on to the next community. Absolutely. Yeah. And that that also happens for, for military folks as well. I've met some people, active duty military, who, you know, every year or two, they get transferred to a new base, a new area. And rather than, you know, renting something and, you know, kind of not ever owning anything, why not have a tiny house instead and, and get to use that rent money towards a house that you own? It's interesting. I was I was informed by a, fr- a friend of mine, an urban planner, Howard Blackson in San Diego, you know, the history of the, the bungalow court, you know, where you might have, you know, eight or nine sort of 400 square foot little cottages around a courtyard with a larger building at the end was really born out of these military towns where people were getting moved around or overseas and came back and they needed small, affordable, safe places for their families to live while they were being uh, deployed. So I didn't really realize it, but there's a strong connection between tiny homes or bungalow courts and pocket neighborhoods and these military towns. Oh, wow. That's that's really interesting. I didn't know that either. So, so. with Tiny Camp, um, it seems like you made the decision or are you running Tiny Camp? Like, is this, is it kind of your business after developing it or is it somebody else that's running it? No, it's us. Mm-hmm. Cool. So it seems like you made the decision to do that one as short-term rentals rather than, you know, renting the tiny homes to people who just would want to live there full-time. Um, can you talk about why you decided to do it that way? Yeah, really good point. We had so much interest in tiny house living that we wanted to give them the opportunity and then to basically have a list of people who want to do full-time tiny house living and, and then provide them with a larger project or a larger community of where they could choose to live. And that's, that's this next project that we're launching. We've had, I think 13 building officials come from other jurisdictions, you know, with their spouses and, to stay at tiny camp, but also to go out and have breakfast after and talk about how did you legally do this and how could we do this? Say that the building official from the town of Windsor, Canada came down last fall. We just had Chuck Durrett, who is kind of, he brought the co-housing concept from Denmark, uh, him and his wife 25 years ago, and they built 25 co-housing communities in the U.S. They came and stayed. And we also recently had Jim Souls, who him and his business partner wrote the book Pocket Neighborhoods, and he's developed, I think, 12 or maybe 14 pocket neighborhoods starting in the Pacific Northwest, and they've come to stay. So it's it's been a great connection for us to meet these thought leaders and have them actually stay there and then talk about how do we replicate this and how can we do this in other locations. Well, speaking of, of replicating it, for other locations, um, what, you know, what advice do you have? I know this is a huge, probably a huge question and we could devote an entire podcast episode just to this, but, you know, I, I want to create a tiny house community here in Vermont. Like, what do I do first? Oh yeah. Good question. So, you know, the real challenge is, is where, and, and, and also proximity to, to infrastructure services and, and also social services. You know, a lot of people, I, from talking to a lot of people over the last four years, there's this idea of the tiny house in the wilderness. And I, I know some friends who've done that in Colorado. They were pretty remote. And after six, eight months, they had enough of it. You know, I, I believe people, a lot of people yearn to be in a community setting, in a supportive setting. So that's why I'm liking these ideas of these infill projects where you build a, a self-sustaining, supporting community. So that that means you're generally looking for property that's underutilized, vacant, an old parking lot, could be an old industrial site, where there already is water, sewer, power on the site. That's going to be the most cost-effective. 
there are people that want to go and be off the grid and do their thing off the grid. But a lot of people realize by the time you engineer and design your systems, your solar panels and everything else over time and the maintenance and the, and the, the, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The lifetime costs of that, uh, can be more than some people are willing to, to, to take on. Um, so it really depends on the location and in what kind of community, you know, that you're you're trying to create. Got it. So what are the current what's the current state of tiny homes in Sedona? Like if if somebody already owned a tiny home on a movable tiny home and they were like, I wanna come and live in Sedona, would they have to buy land and then develop it or you know is it is it possible to find somebody to host your tiny house in their backyard what's what are the current state of the laws there yeah interesting so i have projects in coconino county which is north of sedona in sedona and then in yavapai county uh the next county over sedona unfortunately does not allow tiny homes and it does not allow camping or RVs. And mainly it's a huge, you know, they get three and a half million visitors a year and they want to kind of control where people are camping. Sure. You can't just camp out in a, in a residential neighborhood. Um, so that's a challenge. I, I must have about four or 500 requests from people that, you know, want to buy land and build a tiny house in and around Sedona. And, and it's unfortunate to say to them that well it doesn't pencil and you you really can't do it for for the zoning reasons but also even if you could do it they don't have a minimum unit size so you could do it but the land's a million dollars an acre so if you pay a million dollars an acre for the land and pay all the fees and the infrastructure costs you know a two or three hundred square foot unit doesn't make sense right um i run the numbers in that community and at about 750 square feet, it kind of make it kind of makes sense. You, so you can build a small house in Sedona, buy land, build a small house, even have a secondary unit, but it's going to cost you a half million dollars. So you know, it a lot of people aren't looking to spend a half million dollars for a tiny house, even if it has a rental unit on the back. There might be some more cost-effective places to do it, and that's that's why we have our project called gather which is about 20 minutes from sedona mm -hmm. and and it's in the town of clarkdale and they were very gracious and working with us over the summer during covid and all of this these strange times to actually permit this um, our next project so that people can you know rent a space and and have a, a you know a place for their own tiny home that they own right so it sounds like then maybe clarkdale you you still have to go outside of the urban center. Not that Sedona is an urban center, but you know to find a town where the laws are a little bit more relaxed. It it really does depend. There were a lot of people down in Phoenix that that had a tiny home, and then they didn't go through all the channels, and they ended up having to have them removed yeah. recently. I think of four, three or four people I know who who've unfortunately had to do that. Uh -huh. I I would recommend to people, you know, zoning bylaws and general plans and specific plans, all that stuff is online. You can download it. You can read it. You can call the planning department. I encourage everyone to legally permit their projects and not just kind of, you know, well, let's just put it here and, you know, wait till somebody complains. If you're going to build a community around where you're going to live, and 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 create and nurture friendships you're going to want to be there for a long time and not have to move every six months because you didn't permit your tiny house so there are ways around it it, it does it's not easy it does take a fair bit of research yeah absolutely and it, it seems like it's really about figuring out what that town what their priorities already are and then showing them how tiny houses can meet those needs. So if it's, you know, infill or lack of affordable housing or, you know, all these things, you can you can make a case for tiny houses. It, exactly, exactly. 
and you may not have every department behind you, but if you start, if you have the planning department behind you, that'll go a long way in convincing the building official to do something innovative. You know, there's a, I don't know if you've covered it in any of your interviews, but the, Dan Parolek uh, coined a term kind of missing middle housing. So it's the idea that, you know, if you look at these great old 1920s and 1930s neighborhoods, there were single family homes, there were fourplexes, duplexes, small apartments, walk-up apartments. And what's happened over the last 80 years is we've stopped building that whole broad range of building types. And we basically have single family home builders and we have apartment builders. And there's a movement to bring back the fourplex and there's a movement to bring back the accessory dwelling unit. And I look at tiny homes as being one of those housing types on that missing middle, you know, spectrum, if you will. So, uh, yeah, it's exciting to work in this field. Yeah, there's a lot to be excited about. Um, what is there something or, or several things like what are you excited about for the future of, of tiny homes? I, I think what excites me the most are the passionate people that come and stay with us and then follow up with me with a letter or an email. And I, I want to live in a tiny house community or we want to downsize um, or we want a place in our backyard for our, you know, our, our parents to age in place, if you will, mm -hmm. those types of things. So there's, there's still a, a lot of excitement. And, um, you know, also if you're able to live within your, you know, right now, the economy, if you're looking forward, you know, with COVID and the impact on jobs, um, instead of going into debt, you know, if we can be creative and live within our means, even during times like this, it goes a long way to reducing stress, you know, increasing quality of life. And then hopefully, you know, people that live this way more sustainably will have the freedom to travel or, you know, exercise more or go to the gym or spend more time with their kids that they wouldn't have to do if they were working extra hard to you know pay the mortgage on the large house. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think for me it's just how mainstream it's getting, which I don't say that negatively at all, just that that tiny homes are being more widely accepted, people know what they are, and they're really starting to appeal to a broad range of of people. Yeah, it's great to see you know all the TV shows, all the information, your podcast and there's just so much content. You talked about tiny house, the tiny house expedition folks. You know, they they work so hard to get these great videos that you know you don't have to go there and travel and 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 go see it. You can you can watch the videos online and learn from you know other people's experiences, which is which is fantastic. I'm currently on a road trip looking at other projects right now. I haven't done much traveling during COVID. But I just needed to get inspired and go see some things. So I'm currently on a road trip and I was passing through Santa Barbara. And what's interesting, the whole main street is blocked off and it's because of COVID and the restaurants and they want the restaurants and bars to stay open and have everybody with their safe distance, you know, for social distancing. And it's just amazing that the government, the bureaucrats, the chambers of commerce were able to work together and make these changes happen in cities overnight. And as an urban planner, we spent about 20 years fighting to take our streets back from the car and to do just this. And it took one event to pivot, you know, how our main streets are, are currently operating. I hope the tiny house movement has that kind of momentum and pivot that we've seen recently um so that we have this you know overwhelming push to creativity in the housing market and uh so we don't have to struggle to find a place to put your tiny house yeah definitely and it's it's so interesting cuz just speaking from personal experience you know i'm in burlington vermont and i would love to have my tiny home here in burlington um but it's just it's not happening right now. You know, I've been in touch with people in the planning department. There are people in the planning department who really want tiny homes, but between lot coverage issues, water, runoff, parking, you know, this is a, a small city that doesn't, it's not going to expand its, its outline. And they, 
you know, they've decided to start by making ADUs a little bit easier to build. Um, but not that many people are building them because when you add up all the cost of permitting and all the site work that needs to be done, you're still talking about, you know, definitely over $100,000, probably closer to $150,000 for an ADU. And here we have, you know, tiny, movable tiny homes that some of them have their own onboard water, um, you know, storage. So they're not like, they're not even hooking up to the grid at all. And they're just ready to go. But it just, it hasn't yet become dire enough that that is happening. Yeah, and I, I hear what you're saying. It, it is happening, though. My friend sits on the, is the head of the planning commission in Boulder, Colorado. And I've been working on him for four years since I started working in the tiny house world to innovate the city of Boulder's, you know, housing program to allow for tiny homes. And I would say that politically, Boulder, Colorado and Burlington, Vermont are pretty much aligned. You know, no growth, smart growth, you know, lack of of, of affordable land to build on mm. uh, college town. So if Bold and Boulder just did it uh, two months ago. So if Boulder can do it, I, I believe that Burlington will will follow suit. And a lot of this is kind of what, you know, Dan Fitzpatrick from the Tiny House Industry Association is saying is that, you know, cities copy from other cities what's working. And as, as, as we get these more and more models, it's a lot easier to go in there with the tiny house ordinance from Boulder now and, and take that to the elected officials in, 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 um, in Burlington. So, so it is happening. And, uh, but I, I now have six projects I'm working on and two of them, they've, those jurisdictions have recently allowed tiny homes but it doesn't incentivize tiny homes. It just allows tiny homes. Mm -hmm. And so well, I, I was supposed to have a pre-app Zoom call on one of those projects today. And it's like starting all over again because it's allowed. Yeah, you can have a small unit, but you still have to do the fire sprinklers. You still have to put it on a permanent foundation. You still are only allowed, you know, one or two units per lot. So you're only building four or 600 square feet on a plot of land that costs you $100,000. That doesn't make sense. Why not allow, you know, the equivalent coverage of a house, right? Yeah. A 1,600 square foot house, you know, that that's like four, well, why, why not allow four tiny homes? You know, things like that. So uh, you just have to be prepared for those battles, be educated, read the codes, and provide them with precedents and case studies from other jurisdictions that have done it. And that, that can help put them at ease, but it doesn't happen quickly. I've allocated three months to work with this one community to, and they have a tiny house ordinance, but it's not rest tiny homes. It just permits them. And now I need it, you know, three to six months just to make it viable, you know? Um, wow. So, but I, I, I think the future is bright and, and uh, there's been a lot of changes happening. You just have to look at some of the tiny house feeds on Instagram or, you know, YouTube to to see these examples. Community First Village in Austin is a wonderful example of how people coming together can work together and provide, you know, housing solutions and, and a variety of housing choices. I'm not familiar with that one, but I'll I'll look it up. Yeah, I can't remember where they're at. They're in their second or third phase of development, but they have a few hundred units. And uh, it's one of my favorite projects. I believe I'm going there um, in a week or so to uh, to do another visit and and you know see how they've solved some of the the challenges and and continue to grow and build their um, their community. Nice. I was curious actually um, to have you tell us about about Crowdbright. Um, what what does it do, and is there any application for for folks who are working to advocate for tiny homes and tiny home villages. Yeah, really good point. Crowdbright is a sort of public information tool that we use for urban planning. We used it for downtown Las Vegas and the waterfront of Honolulu, for example. But I just used it for my tiny house village in Clarkdale, Arizona. So there's a website 
crowdbreak.net forward slash Clarkdale. And you can see the beginning of the project, the history, the site analysis, the public engagement process, the plans, everything's on there. So it's like a living, breathing document of the process to entitle that 22 unit tiny house village. So I think others could use it. I'm more than welcome to work with uh, folks that are trying to do the same thing and, and to make it uh, available. Actually, we just spoke with this morning with uh, Madison, Wisconsin Transportation Department, and they want to use it for their transportation plan update, but also for some infill housing opportunities as well. Very cool. So it's like a project management, and also it creates, it seems like it creates kind of nice visual plans and processes that can then be presented. Exactly. Yeah, good point. It has interactive maps and graphics, and it's highly visual, and it's designed to educate and inform people about your, you know, your proposed project and to enable them to provide detailed feedback. The next phase, as we have a we have a good sized list of people interested in our gather project. And there's a sign up form. I'm, can I give out that domain name? Sure. Uh, www.tinycamp.com forward slash gather. And you can find a bit of information and sign up to be on the list. Nice. And what we're gonna what we're gonna do is go out to people with uh like an online charrette or or digital workshop, and we want to we want to do an online brainstorm of the types of amenities that people are looking for who are interested in being part of this community. We have a short list already, you know, with the dog park and the walking trails and things like that. But there might be things that we haven't thought of. In the first round where we did this with the community and the neighbors. This town of Clarkdale was a smeltering town for cop for a copper mill nearby. It was it was a the first master planned community in northern in actually in Arizona, and we wanted to be the first master planned tiny house village in Arizona. So there's a connection there. But then people started bringing up ideas like the historic industrial style uh, um, lighting that was used at the smelter could be incorporated into the tiny house village. So we made modifications, about 40 modifications already, just from the input from the neighbors and the, and the community. And now we want to hear from the people who are interested in living there, you know, what kind of things that they're looking for. Very cool. So it sounds like it's a very iterative process that you really try to involve the community and also the people who are going to live there. Yeah, we... We believe that's why we like the co the co housing movement is because people work to help create the project. It's not a developer going out and building a project and then hiring a real estate agent trying to, you know, sell what they've created. It, it, it's a it's almost like a co design process. And we think, you know, tiny house villages and co design go hand in hand. You know, everyone has great ideas. And how do we how do we how do we build communities and how do we do it by working together collaboratively? That's the big question. Nice. Well, I had a kind of random question um, that I wanted to get in there because I was curious at Tiny Camp, there's the one tiny house that is on wheels, but then you put it up onto a permanent foundation. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how that was engineered and, and what what that's like? You Yeah, um, so it was a difficult spot to get to, and we we had already brought used a crane to bring in our other units that were craned onto permanent foundations, and, and there was about an eight foot drop. So we we designed and engineered a, a retaining wall, and and then a large deck uh, coming off of it, and the tiny house was brought in on wheels and then brought up to the same grade as that. Um, um, as the deck behind the retaining wall. So the other thing is the retaining wall then also hides the wheels of the tiny house and all the footings and, you know, the support structures underneath it. And in a lot of these jurisdictions, you know, you can't just park a tiny house on wheels there. You have to actually anchor it down. You have to meet the wind load, snow load requirements, things like that. 
So then we're actually able to anchor the tiny house down to the back of the retaining wall and kind of is the best of both worlds. So very cool. Yeah. So it's a to the asset. Oh, and the other reason for that is it's real property. So it's on the assessor's rules. So it adds value to your property. If it was just on wheels, it's not real property. You can't get a loan and borrow money to do that. But if it's real property on a permanent foundation, it changes the rules for insurance and lowers the cost. It changes the rules for fire regulations. And it, it adds value to your property. Yeah, that's actually a, a great point. It's kind of the flip side of being on a trailer is that if you can afford to build on a foundation, so meaning that you own the land, you know, you you are going to get more value out of it. So I'm living in a 510 square foot casita on my friend's property. And I'm primarily doing that because my vision is to try it out, see how it works, make modifications to it, and potentially build a small village of five of these in West Sedona. And she just had an appraisal done last week. And uh, I just was informed this morning, the appraisal came back great. And she's going to be able to either refinance it and lower her rate because she was paying a much higher rate because it was a different form of real estate. It wasn't traditional real estate. And she can also uh, borrow against it to do her next project or to add on to her house. So the, the real challenge with tiny homes and accessory dwelling units is that you need a comp for the appraiser to justify the value of that real estate asset. And unless you're in a funky area like my Oak Creek Canyon, where there are some historic little cabins that are worth $400,000, it's hard to get an appraisal for something that small. So you have to create your own precedent. So it's almost like if you and your friends want to do a tiny house village, you almost have to carve off a small lot, build one, sell it to your friend, and then that's the comp for the rest of your project. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. And it's but yet it's something that I you wouldn't think that is a thing unless you already knew about it. Yeah, and there's um I, I I'm I can't remember his name offhand, but there's a fellow in um Portland that has a whole website on accessory dwelling units. And he had a whole series during COVID of free online trainings on accessory dwelling units. And, and one of them was on financing. And unfortunately, the, you know, adding an accessory dwelling unit to your house, say it costs you a quarter million dollars, it doesn't pay back. The appraisals come back and show it's, it adds $80,000 of value to your house, even though you can live there or your parents can live there. The, the, the traditional real estate practices don't recognize the value because it's based on a square foot basis, which is truly unfortunate. And that's one of the things in the tiny house world that we're constantly fighting against. So the more and more sustainable, well-designed tiny house villages there are that sell or have units that sell, the more comps, uh, comprehensive uh, comps that we have for the next project to happen. Nice like that. So one thing that I like to ask all of my guests is what are two or three books or resources that that you recommend that have maybe helped you uh, do what you do that that you can recommend to our listeners? I'd say Christopher Alexander, A Pattern Language. Uh -huh. And um, it's a great resource. He was a professor at Berkeley and uh and it talks about design and space and repetition and all the things that that help to create our built environment so there's a lot of things in there that the tiny house world can learn from that's a pattern language by christopher alexander um another one would be the pocket neighborhood book um by ross shapen and uh jim souls it was his developer business partner mm -hmm. i just did a podcast with them um, and we're going to put that online for our Clarkdale project. I can send you a link to that later as a, as a follow-up. Yeah, please do. And then 
you know, there's all sorts of book you could talk about with Mary Kondo and the whole, you know, spark joy and downsizing and minimalist living. But I'm still inspired by the co-housing movement and the books of Chuck Durrett. He has a co-housing book. He has a seniors co-housing book. And he called me this week to say he's got a brand new book, but I haven't got it in the mail yet. And there's just some great tidbits in there on how to build community and how to work with people to bring them together. And also on, you, you were talking about financing and banking, how they work to create a joint LLC to create their own investment capital pool to buy land and do their own development. So they're not, you know, at the behest of a, of a developer trying to sell them something they don't want. They can create their own future. So I think those are the most inspiring books that I can think of right now. Cool. And so that the person who created the LLC, that's Chuck Durrett? That's one of the approaches for financing a co-housing project. And I believe that could work in the tiny house world as well. The idea is instead of going and finding a developer to do it, everyone goes and puts in $25,000. You go and you option a piece of land. You work through the entitlement process together and you and your friends become your own bank. And then, we, and then if you go to the bank to get a construction loan, you can show that you've got X thousands of dollars already invested from your group. So nice. it's, it's but one, one method you can use to finance a tiny house village. Nice. Well, now I, now I wish, now I think I might have to get you back on to just do a whole show on financing tiny house villages because it sounds like there's a lot of options. Well, it's a challenge. So I've been kind of working on this for a, 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 a while, trying to figure out different options, but, but that's one of them. Yeah. We, we, with Crowdbright, we also did some crowdfunding. And uh, not for housing in particular, but we did some crowdfunding for parks and open space in Honolulu. And I would like to explore crowdfunding in the future. And maybe even we might even think about doing a Kickstarter campaign for our, our gather project to build the community building. So that's something that, that we're thinking about. Very cool. Well, Darren Dinsmore. Thank you so much for your time and your generosity. Uh, you are definitely someone to watch in this tiny house space because you have a lot of exciting things going on. And, and I thank you for, for coming on the show to tell me about them. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. Um, I really enjoy listening to your productions. I'm, I'm always amazed that they're fun, they're interesting, they're exciting, and the sound quality. So thanks for helping me sort out my technical issues today. And I hope uh, we get some great content that's shareable for everybody else. Thank you so much to Darren Dinsmore for being a guest on the show. You can find the show notes from today's episode, including links to Tiny Camp Sedona, Darren's other projects that are upcoming, and lots of great photos at thetinyhouse.net slash 137. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 137. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.